Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Nehemiah. And we are continuing our series in Nehemiah, the series called Resurgence. And in Nehemiah, we're learning all about rebuilding and coming together as a community to rebuild the walls, specifically in Nehemiah's time, and rebuild the house of God. That they have gone back to Jerusalem after years and years of captivity, and they have gone back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem that has previously been torn down for years and years and years. And so Pastor Donald's been taking us through that the last several weeks, and we've learned that Nehemiah has really taken it upon himself to lead this resurgence. And Nehemiah has experienced different things. He's seen God work in his life where he has uh, gained favor with the, the king at that time. And the king allowed him to go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah has energized this new energy through the power of God with the people. And we saw in last week in, in Donald's sermon in, in chapter 3 where we have all sorts of people participating in this resurgence. We have literally everybody in the community, everybody that is a Jew is participating in this. We saw last week that we even had some that weren't even into heavy-duty labor or things like that. You had the non-laborers even getting their hands dirty and rebuilding this wall. You had some jewelers, right, who's like probably not their skill set to get their hands dirty and to, to rebuild this wall. We have a, a father who brought his daughters along, like, hey, like, you got to participate in this too, rebuild, rebuilding this wall. And we had even the priests, right, in their fancy attire and their robes and everything. They're out there. They're getting their sleeves rolled up, and they're participating in the rebuild. And where we left off last week was that we had a community completely united under God, committed to being the people of God, waiting for God to work, praying to God, and working in faithful expectation that God was going to do a work among them and that they were going to be successful not because of what they were doing, but because they expected God to intervene and to do a work where they were. And Nehemiah has led that charge. He's led the charge, and he said, this is what God said he's going to do in his word. We will unite as a community, and we will seek God's favor and pray for his favor as we continue to work on this wall. And so where we left off at the end of chapter 3 in Nehemiah is we have uh, this unity of spirit and mind and heart of the people as they work together to rebuild the wall, and they are making progress. And so as we transition to Nehemiah 4 and 5, we're going to see what happens when God's people are united, working together, seeking to accomplish the will of God, and what they encounter here in chapters 4 and 5. We have quite a few verses to get through this morning, so I'm not going to ask you to stand. But if you have Nehemiah chapter 4 open, I'm going to read through this fairly quickly, and we will, we will get through this and see what happens here. And so Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Verse 4, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their taunt back on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. 
So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of us and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother." And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, 
We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have just read your word, Lord, and um, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we've read your word, and now it's the Holy Spirit's job to work on our hearts, God, to have us see you as you would have us to see you this morning. Lord, that we would learn what it means to face opposition in the Christian life, that we would learn what you have for us in our walk with you, Lord, and that there is life and that there is life to the abundance found in you, Lord, in our lives. God, help us to see you at work in scripture this morning and how Nehemiah handled opposition. Lord, I pray that you would guide this sermon, Lord, guide our hearts to you, and may we see you for the glorious God that you really are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as we see here in this passage, everything is going well in chapter 3. The wall is being built. At this point, it would have been up to maybe half of its height. They seem to have closed a lot of the gaps that were in the wall. Everybody is working well together when all of a sudden, Opposition comes knocking for the people of God. Life works that way sometimes, doesn't it? When everything is going well, when things seem to be working smoothly, things are lining up and you just sense the presence of God in your life, all of a sudden there's some kind of event, some kind of opposition in your life that seems to derail things. It causes you to question your faith causes you to maybe question what you're doing. Is this really in the will of God? Is this really what God has for me? Everything was going so smoothly. Is this a sign that maybe, maybe this isn't what God has for me during this time in my life? What should I listen to? As I was preparing for this message and reading through Nehemiah 4 and 5, I was trying to think of an illustration that kind of represents opposition, maybe an illustration in pop culture. And the movie that kept coming to mind to me is Rocky, right? Um, So Rocky, the movie, like the original movie from 1976, is about this boxer, right? And they have like 25 sequels to Rocky, and the guy just 
faces crazy opposition in all these movies, right? And he's constantly getting punched in the face. And the reason why we all love Rocky is because it doesn't matter how many times he gets punched in the face. The guy just keeps getting back up, right? Um, And so that's the crazy thing about Rocky. But if you think back to the very first film, the Rocky movie called Rocky in 1976, the one that started it all, right, and started all this Rocky franchise, billions of dollars being poured into this movie franchise. The first movie, when you watch it, there's like really not a lot of boxing in the entire movie. Do you remember that? There's like the opening scene is like a boxing match, and then the end is like a boxing match. But everything in the middle is the crux and the plot of the movie. And the whole movie doesn't center around a boxing match. That's kind of the culmination of what happens in the middle. But the whole movie is actually Rocky facing internal and external opposition. If you think about it, the whole movie is Rocky trying to show everyone that he's not a bum. That's the entire movie. The entire movie is just Rocky trying to prove that he's not a bum, that he's not a loser, and that he's more than what everybody else says that he is. Because you think about it in the movie, he talks to the neighborhood kids, the neighborhood kids call him a creep. Uh, his, his former trainer actually takes his locker away from him in his gym because he says Rocky is a waste of time, he's squandered his talent, and he's a waste of life at this point. And he gives his locker away to, to some younger talent that's coming in. So he loses his locker. And then he, his coworkers call him a bum. Basically, he says he's no good. He's not going to make anything of himself. And so this entire scene, you know, series of scenes in this movie is Rocky trying to redeem himself of this opposition, trying to prove to everybody else that he's not a bum. When along comes Apollo Creed. Apollo Creed is the world heavyweight champion. And Apollo Creed says, I want to fight you, Rocky Balboa, in the ring. And long story short, Rocky decides to fight him, but he ultimately isn't fighting Apollo Creed. He's fighting for his own standing. He's fighting to prove that he's not just a bum. And he's actually fighting for truth. What does he believe is true about himself? What does he believe is true? What people are saying about him as they taunt him, as they jeer him, as he faces this opposition, what does he believe to be true? Is he a bum or is he something else entirely? And so Rocky finds it within himself to get into the ring. He finally gets into the ring, and he's not trying to fight Apollo Creed. He's just trying to prove to everyone else that he's not a waste of life, that he's not a bum. And he ends up going all 14 or 15 rounds, however many rounds are in a heavyweight boxing match. Again, I don't even like boxing, but the movie's not about boxing, right? People who don't watch boxing get into Rocky because it's all about Rocky overcoming opposition. And so he goes 15 rounds with this guy, and at the end, he actually loses the match. But there's this warm fuzzy at the end where he's like, Adrian, and, you know, Adrian shows up, and, you know, 15 other movies are spawned from this one movie. And this resonates with us, right? Because opposition is a part of life. We can resonate with Rocky the fighter because deep down in all of us, we want to know that there is something greater inside of us than what people say about us or maybe what we believe about ourselves, And Rocky's fighting for truth. He's fighting for what he believes about himself is true. And he keeps on pushing forward. And as Christians, we will often face opposition. And actually, more often than not, we will face opposition because the ruler of this world will constantly throw opposition at us. Read Ephesians 6. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against supernatural powers of this world. Our fight is constantly otherworldly, supernatural. Satan does not want us to succeed in the Christian life. Anything that he can do to distract us from the will of God and our faithfulness to God, he will throw at us. 
And so that brings us to today's main point. When things are going well and opposition tends to come, are God's promises still true? Is he still trustworthy? Whether we say these things out loud, these are the things we think about. Is God who he says he is? And if you think about it, this is the very question that the serpent asked Adam and Eve in the garden, or particularly Eve. Did God really say this? When we look in our Bibles and we read it, do we really believe this is who God says that he is, and that he is for us, not against us, and that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us? Do you feel like that on a regular basis? Is it hard to believe that sometimes? Is he still trustworthy? These are the questions that we ask when we face opposition. Today's main idea, as we look at the life of Nehemiah and the life of God's people at this point in the Old Testament, they're trying to rebuild God's city, God's temple, and they're trying to fight for their identity of who they are as God's people. Today's main idea is, as Christians, when opposition comes, we fight to persevere in our faithfulness to God. And the main word that I want us to focus on this morning is perseverance. And perseverance, basic definition of perseverance is persistence in doing something despite the difficulty or delay in achieving success. Persistence in doing something despite the difficulty or delay in achieving success. At the core of all opposition is an enemy looking to derail God's will and to destroy God's people. In today's passage, Nehemiah and the people are going to face severe opposition. And we're going to see how God works through his people when they face opposition. So let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 4, first three verses here. We see the beginning of opposition here. Now, Sambalat, we've, we've heard of this guy earlier. He already kind of started to oppose the people in chapter 2. But in chapter 4 and uh, throughout chapter 4, he's going to up his game here, okay? So let's see where he starts opposing the people. Verse 1, now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, uh, historically and culturally at this time, Sambalot was the leader of what we would know as Samaria. Uh, Samaria, you'll recognize in the New Testament through various stories that Jesus told. You remember the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, Samaritans and Jews were always at odds. The Samaritans were a group of Jews who had basically intermingled with Assyrian culture. Um, and so Jews kind of saw them as like half-breeds, not fully committed to God's people because they had intermingled with the Assyrian culture and they had intermarried, and so their, their bloodline was kind of tainted by that. And so the, the Samaritans were, were actually going up against God's people here. In particular, Sambalat was sort of their leader. He was the leader of their or army, their governor. And so when he sees the Jews coming in with the king's approval to rebuild the, the walls around Jerusalem, he views that as a threat. That's a threat to his little kingdom there in Samaria because likely he's wanting to rule this land for himself. And so he's going to do whatever it takes to stop them from building this wall. And so what he starts with, it says in verse 1, he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And he gets his buddy Tobiah in on it. So Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yeah. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. 
So in all of this, what comes to mind when I read this is middle school, to be honest with you. I mean, he goes straight up middle school on these guys. He's just taunting and jeering, and he's just making fun of, of the Jews. And so he's around them. They're rebuilding the wall. They're experiencing this excitement, this energy, this enthusiasm that Nehemiah, through the grace of God, has breathed just new life on this people. And all of a sudden, uh, Sambalot and Tobiah and all these people are just making fun of them. And basically saying, like, you guys, you're not even engineers. You're not even construction people. If a fox goes up on that wall, it's going to fall down. And so they try to break them down uh, with their words and with their taunts and with their jeers. And, and so we see that this, this idea of, of words bringing people down, it's, it's the very first sign of opposition in our story today. And, and the question is, well, how are the people going to respond to this level of opposition? Check out verses 4 through 6. It says, and this is Nehemiah's prayer here. So the, the dialogue changes quickly from Tobiah and Sambalot to Nehemiah. He says in verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6, so we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Some translations in verse 6 said the people were building enthusiastically. So what happens here when the people face verbal taunts and opposition? Nehemiah just goes directly to God. Throughout the whole book of Nehemiah, we've seen this as a theme, the first three chapters. We're going to continue to see it as a theme here in chapter 4, where Nehemiah just takes this directly to God. He sees it for what it really is, basically middle school like taunts, jeers. Like, hey, like, whatever, don't listen to them. Like, continue the work. God, this is yours. He says, uh, God, don't cover their guilt. He says, uh, let them be given up to plunder in a land where they are captives. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. He basically just gives the whole thing to God. He says, God, this is your work. This is what's happening. You see what's happening. This is your job to take care of this. We're going to complete the work. And so you see, after that prayer, the people just keep back working. I mean, they don't even pause. They just keep working and keep working and keep working because this opposition to them it's just taunts, just verbal taunts. They're not going to pay any attention to it. They give it to God, and they move on. And so that's their first response to opposition, is that they just give it to God. In verse 6, again, that we built the wall, and the wall was joined together half its height, for the people had a mind to work. They were working enthusiastically. So verse 7, as the work continues and progress is made, and the people continue to work with enthusiasm because they had taken their their taunts that they were receiving and giving it to God. So Sambalot and his buddies, they, they upped the game a little bit. Verse 7, But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So the verbal threats, it gets escalated. It gets escalated into something pretty serious because now they're not just going to fight them verbally, they're going to fight them physically. Sambalot and his buddies are going to come with a plan to destroy the people and to stop the work. Verse 9, again, Nehemiah, he says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. 
So that's Nehemiah's initial response. But let's check out verses 10 through 12, because this is where it starts to get really interesting. So Sambalot and his buddies, they've, uh, they've tried the verbal taunts that didn't work. Uh, the people just ignored them, gave it to God, and continued the work. The building, or the building has gone up to half its height. They've filled in all the gaps. The people are working with enthusiasm continually. And then they escalate the game. They start making actual physical threats on the people's lives. And remember, these aren't warriors. These aren't soldiers building this wall. These people are just like you and me. They're just everyday people. We have some that are shopkeepers, some that are jewelers. We have a guy out there with his daughters. If some uh, leader of armies or several leaders of armies come in and start threatening your life because you're rebuilding this wall, uh, that would give you cause for concern, right? You know you're doing a good work. You know that God is in it. But when somebody starts threatening your life, you start to rethink things a little bit. So let's see how the people react in verses 10 through 12. It says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. This time, the people are shaken. This threat was not just verbal taunts. It was very real, and it was very scary. They were basically overwhelmed with the task. The threats became more real to them than what God had already done, became more real to them than the work that they'd already accomplished. And what was already a difficult task was becoming very much more difficult. Check out verse 6. Remember the people were building with enthusiasm. They had already built the wall to half its height. And now in verse 10, they're saying, the strength of those who build the, or who bear the burdens is falling or failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. The people are doubting. And you know what they've fallen into? Discouragement. They fell into discouragement. A lot of times when we face opposition in our lives, the result is discouragement. And discouragement is uh, an invisible enemy. You can't face discouragement. You can't fight discouragement uh, one-on-one like Rocky Balboa does in in his movie. You can't fight discouragement like that. Discouragement is internal. Uh, And most of the time, you're not even going to notice that it's there, but it's one of the greatest tools of the enemy. Because look what happens as the people get discouraged. Look at verse 10. It says, uh, they basically are saying, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. But in verse 6, they were all working enthusiastically. Four verses later, they're ready to give up. They're ready to give up building the wall and completing God's work because they're being threatened and they've fallen into discouragement. They started to believe in the threat more than their belief in the God who could protect them and help build the wall. And they've fallen into the pit of discouragement. You can define discouragement as a loss of confidence or enthusiasm and often comes as a result of opposition a loss of confidence or enthusiasm. That's exactly what's happening here with the people of God at this time. If you look at verse 10, there's some results of discouragement. The first result is that discouragement can prevent us from fulfilling the will of God. The will of God at this time is for the the people of God to rebuild the walls. He's made it very evident. He sent Nehemiah as their leader to rebuild the wall, yet the people are ready to give up. And they're ready to set aside what the will of God is. The second thing, discouragement can make us lose our focus. Look at verse 11. 
It says, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Notice the words that they're repeating are not the words of God. They're the words of the enemy. They're listening to the enemy. What they so easily set aside, the verbal taunts in verses four through six, they're all of a sudden paying special attention to now because they're actually threatening their way of life and they're threatening their lives physically. So all of a sudden they want to listen to the enemy. They're giving the enemy a word, a voice in their lives, and it's distracting them from their main focus, which is to fulfill the word of God because they've fallen into discouragement. Finally, discouragement saps energy and enthusiasm. Remember how enthusiastic they were in verse 6? They lost all of that in verse 10. They're ready to, to give up. The strength is failing. Those who bear the burdens is failing. And so what, what do the people do? What is Nehemiah's response to this? Nehemiah has been the guy to kind of breathe life into these people this entire time. He's been the leader that they needed to help energize them, to push them forward to the resurgence, to build the walls to what it used to be back in the day when God's presence was in his holy temple and they lived with God. And so their identity as a people here is at stake. And so what does Nehemiah do? Look at verse 9. And we pray to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So the first thing he did was Nehemiah prayed, and then he took immediate action. And this is Nehemiah's trademark in this book. Nehemiah is constantly praying, and he's constantly taking action. He takes those prayers and doesn't just say, God, please take care of this, but he actually uh, believes that God is going to take care of it, and he takes immediate action. So he prays, God, please protect us, but he also sets a guard right? He sets a guard as protection against them day and night. He's like, okay, this is a very real threat. God, we are trusting you, but I'm also going to set a guard because I know that, God, you work in ordinary means. You use everyday people and that your will is that we build this wall. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to work and pray and just trust you, but also I'm going to set a guard and so that we are protected against these enemies. And so Nehemiah takes prayer and action. And if you take prayer and action, what you're exhibiting is faith. Prayer plus action equals faith. It's a theological formula. Prayer plus action equals faith. Nehemiah just doesn't pray and then sit back and wait for God to work. He believes God is going to work, so he gets to work. In our Christian lives, we can't just trust completely that God is just going to make things happen miraculously. He, God wants to use us to fulfill his purposes and his promises to us. And so we need to be ready to work, just like Nehemiah was. So verse 9, he prayed. He took action. In verse 14, it says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remember one of the consequences of discouragement is that we lose our focus. Nehemiah he points the people back to God. Because when we get discouraged, all we tend to look at and think about is the threatening circumstances surrounding our lives. 
but Nehemiah, he points them back to God, and he, remem- he reminds them. He says, remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and also fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He said, listen, we are doing a good work. Remember the Lord. Remember who God is. This, these threats, these are nothing compared to the God that we serve. And so he, he's, he's getting them back to, uh, back to the enthusiasm that they had worked for. He's encouraging the people. In verse 14, he's breathing life back into the people. And that brings us to an important thought when it comes to discouragement. Whenever we fall into discouragement, you think about the times that you have fallen into discouragement. How do you get out? Do you know how you get out of discouragement? Do you tend to get out by yourself? Or is it often somebody who comes alongside you and points you back to God? or reminds you who God is. There's an illustration in one of my favorite books. It's The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's a classic work. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. John Bunyan, uh, you can get it in modern-day English. It's a really good book, but it's, uh, it's an analogy all about the Christian life. It's all about perseverance. It's about Pilgrim, who becomes Christian, who's living the Christian life, and it's an allegory for the Christian life, where he's on his way to heaven, the celestial city, but along the way, he faces opposition. The whole book is about opposition. And uh, Pilgrim or Christian, he's facing all of this opposition. Well, at one point in his journey to the celestial city, Pilgrim falls into this mire, or this quagmire, this quicksand, and basically it's called the sloth of discouragement. And he gets into this quagmire, and of course it's an allegory, so it's using physical things to remind us of what spiritual things are. And so he's stuck in this basically quagmire of discouragement or despondence. And the only way that he can get out of this quagmire is somebody comes along, and that somebody's name is Help. And the only way that he can get out is if this person named Help reaches down and pulls him out of this slough of discouragement. And a lot of times in our life, the only way we can get out of discouragement is if we are able to find somebody to come alongside us and to help us. And so what are the, what are the implications of that? More often than not, God's going to use somebody to help bring you out of discouragement, a fellow brother or sister in Christ. The, the implications of that are, number one, we need to be relentless encouragers. Like, as Christians, we need to be relentless in our encouragement of one another. Just the fact that we face opposition on a daily basis in our individualized lives, in our lives corporately, but our, our identity as Christians, we, we need to be relentless encouragers. For when you fall into discouragement, you want somebody to come in and pull you out and to help point you back to God. Verses 13 through 21, I won't read it again. We've already read it. But this continues Nehemiah's plan. But his plan involved everyone. Like nobody was exempt from Nehemiah's plan. He got everybody back involved. And so he's trying to restore the enthusiasm and the passion and the unity that they all experienced in chapter 3. Nehemiah points them back to God. He encourages the people and he gets everyone involved. He prays, he takes action and exercises his faith and gets everybody back on track. So when we respond to discouragement, we can follow Nehemiah's example in our Christian lives. We pray, turn to God, encourage others, make a plan, and involve others. And what the people do here is they turn back to God and remember who they are. They increase their belief, and that's what opposition does. 
It causes us to be determined to be a part of God's redemptive community. We are determined to be who God says that we are. We do not succumb to opposition, and if we fall into discouragement, we rely on others to help pick us back up and point us back to God and to know that the God of the Bible, the God that we can trust, is trustworthy, that we are fulfilling his purposes, working in his will, and that we can get the job done in his strength. So as Christians, when external opposition comes, we fight to persevere in our faithfulness to God. Rounding out chapter four. Chapter four is all about external opposition. As we transition to chapter five, we're going to see what happens when opposition comes from within, within the people of God. Because as Christians, we're still not immune to sin in our lives, right? We still struggle with sin this side of eternity. And we will struggle in our faith and in working together as a community because we do struggle with sin and we do sin. And so we're going to struggle to work together as God's people. So let's look at chapter 5, where God's people experience internal opposition. How will they handle it? How will Nehemiah handle this internal opposition? So the situation we find ourselves in chapter 5, again, we're, we're coming out of a chapter where they had faced opposition, and they're working back together, much like they were in chapter 3, but then a situation arises in chapter 5 where they're going to face some internal opposition. The situation was they had an economic crisis. There was a crisis going on in the people of God where they were running out of food. And the food was short to a number of factors, and one of them was just working on the wall. It took every single man and most of the women and, you know, the one guy had his daughters out there. I mean, all the people of God are working so hard on this wall that they don't have time to grow the crops that they needed to feed their families. So look at verse 1 in chapter 5. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So basically, we're doing all this work, but we don't have enough food to sustain us and our families. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what was happening in this food shortage, this economic crisis, was that Jewish brothers and sisters were actually taking advantage of other brothers and sisters. So it was within the community. This wasn't the the Persians or the Assyrians or even Sambalot and the the Samaritans. This This was Jew against Jew basically doing what they were not supposed to do. Right, like in Jewish law said that they were not supposed to enslave one another, and if they did, there were certain stipulations to that where they couldn't charge somebody interest, they couldn't uh, mistreat them in any way, because our God is a God of um, of compassion and mercy, and He wants His people to act like Him. So, as a result of this, the poor are being taken advantage of in this economic system. In the first few verses, there we see certain groups who were impacted. In verse 2, there were those that didn't own land and were without food. So if you weren't a landowner, you basically didn't have any food because you didn't have any food to grow. But those that owned the land were being forced to mortgage their property so that they could eat. 
That's what it says in verse 3. They're being forced to mortgage their property just so they can pay taxes and survive. And so whatever property they did have, they had to mortgage it out just to make enough money. And those that could actually didn't own land or didn't mortgage their property, they, they had to borrow money, but they were doing so at incredibly high interest rates. And so the people that were able to borrow money couldn't pay it back because the interest rates were out of control. And they couldn't actually afford to pay back the loan. And so as a result, they felt that they had to sell their children into slavery in order to eat, in verse 5. And keep in mind here, these are Jews suffering at the hand of fellow Jews. This was Jew on Jew here. And this wasn't external opposition, it was internal opposition. And so Nehemiah, once again, has to respond to a crisis, not external opposition this time, but internal opposition. So how does he react? Verses 6 through 13. Check out verse 6. It says, I was very angry. He felt righteous anger. So when I heard their outcry in these words, verse 7, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? So Nehemiah's response here, what fuels Nehemiah's response? Ultimately, his response is fueled by, one, the knowledge of who God is and how God revealed himself in his word and his own relationship with God. As soon as this issue is brought to his attention and he understands what's going on, immediately he reacts based on his own understanding and relationship with God. He immediately knows this is not how God's people are supposed to treat one another. He knows it immediately. He recognizes that sin immediately. Whereas other people may have not recognized it as sin, Nehemiah recognizes immediately this is not how God's people are supposed to live. And why? Because Nehemiah knew God. He had a relationship with God, and he knew the word of God. And the word of God says in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 40, it says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to, buy you the, or to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. Nehemiah knew this scripture. He recognized this scripture, and he recognized that what was happening in actuality among God's people was in stark contrast to this particular scripture. And so Nehemiah pulls the law out. He says, what you're doing is not right. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Look what's already happened, guys. We're being taunted by the other people, and yet we're not obeying the God that has already instructed us how to live. He's like, how are we going to stand up to these... uh, external opposition if we're facing internal opposition. And so he takes action. He takes immediate action. And Nehemiah confronts sin. 
And he com- he's able to confront sin because he knew God's word, which allowed him to expose it in the first place. And how does he confront sin? He refers back to the character of God, and he refers back to the word of God. In our lives, when we experience internal opposition, when we experience internal opposition, maybe in this church, and we have discussions and where we, we don't agree, and maybe there's an issue of sin, the first thing we do is not necessarily to point the finger, but we point back to God. We say, well, what does God say? And in our church, we strive as much as possible to live under the authority of the word of God. This is the sole authority of our church right here. And that gives the congregation an opportunity to read the word of God. We're not Catholic. You don't have to come to the the pastors or the elders to get interpretation of the Bible. You have a Bible for yourself, and you can read it and interpret it. And if I'm up here and I've already said something even today or before where you you say, hey, Jeff, that does not align with the word of God. I I want you to do that. Please (laughs) point me in the right direction because we live under the word of God. This is the sole authority. Now, we have elders, and we we strive to have a a biblical view of, of elders and leadership in the church and uh, pastors, and we, we try to follow scripture uh, as best as we can in that, but ultimately we follow the word of God. And so if any of us up here are preaching anything that is against the word of God as you interpret it, please have that discussion. And, but point back to God. Point back to God and point back to his word like Nehemiah did. And so Nehemiah, his response was informed by his relationship with God, the character of God, and the word of God. If there is sin, in the body of Christ, we turn to the word of God for guidance, and then we do not hesitate to expose the sin and take action steps to rectify it, just like Nehemiah. Because ultimately, here's the deal. This internal sin issue was distracting from the work that God wanted them to do. It was distracting them away from the mission of rebuilding the wall. The resurgence, the rebuild, was being hindered by this sin issue. And they couldn't repair the broken wall until they dealt with the brokenness of their own hearts. They needed forgiveness, and they needed to acknowledge their own sinfulness and need for forgiveness. And listen to this. As we talk about resurgence in this series, and Donald actually mentioned this last week, before we can start repairing broken walls, we need to look within ourselves and start repairing broken hearts. And the only way we can do that is if we acknowledge our sinfulness and turn to Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can repair a broken heart. We're all broken here. We don't, we don't hide that at our church. We, we try to have an, uh, an environment, a culture, where we are openly broken, because that's the truth of who we are. We're all broken. We're all born into sin. But we don't have to stay that way. We fight to maintain our faith in God. We fight to live the life that Jesus would have us live. So as Christians... When internal opposition comes, we fight to persevere in our faithfulness to God, which sometimes requires confession of sin, exposure of sin, and recognizing our need for God's strength to accomplish the work. As we close out this morning, we have a few more verses. I'll try to get through this. We have a large passage today. I apologize. Verses 14 through 19, the the, the subheader there says, Nehemiah's generosity. And as I was reading through this, I couldn't help but notice that the key to all of this is Nehemiah. And we see Nehemiah's generosity in this passage, where Nehemiah has been apparently elected governor at this point. This is the first time in the book of Nehemiah that we see that Nehemiah has been elected to some sort of official position, that he's governor. And so he's sort of 
uh, I guess, legislative, you know, running legislative issues here for the people, and he's, he's acting kind of like their governor. Um, but it says, in contrast to the previous governors before them, it says, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ra- ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. In this particular passage, I want to draw your attention away from Nehemiah and to Jesus, because Nehemiah ultimately in this book is a type of Christ. Who is the one that the people turn to in this story? It's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the one that points them back to God. Every single time they face opposition, every single time there's difficulty, they look to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah points them back to God. In our lives in the New Testament, who do we look to? We look to Jesus, and Jesus gives us a picture of who God is. We look to Jesus, and Jesus points us to God the Father. He shows us the way by his example in his life. Look at this passage with Nehemiah's generosity. It actually mirrors a passage in the New Testament in Philippians 2, 6 through 7. It says, who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. By all human standards, Nehemiah had every right to take on the precedent, the privileges of being governor of this people. All the previous governors had exacted tax, they had exacted tribute, and they exacted food from the people, but Nehemiah said no, that, that burden is too heavy for the people. I'm not going to do that. Think about Jesus, who is the Son of God, lived with God in perfect harmony with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and yet he set aside those things. Scripture says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on the cross. Nehemiah did not take the privileges of governor for the welfare of the people. Jesus did not think about being equal with God. He was equal with God and was as a man, and yet he chose to live as a man and to sacrifice himself for you and I. Nehemiah is a picture of Christ. Whenever the people encountered opposition, they looked to Nehemiah Whenever there was sin, Nehemiah pointed them to Yahweh, to God. As Christians, we look to Jesus. When we face opposition, we don't let discouragement overwhelm us. We look to Jesus. Whenever beset by sin, we look to Jesus. Jesus causes us to be reconciled back to God where we can find forgiveness and love and relationship. As we close... Remember Rocky? Remember his, his final fight, right? He ended up losing the fight. But what's significant about Rocky, and again, the movie's not about boxing, right? It's not. But if you remember the, the film, remember the movie, where that's the night before the fight, and Rocky has just done all the montages of training, and he's, you know, done all the running, and he's done the steps and the weightlifting and everything, and he's having this conversation with Adrian. And he just says to her, he says, I can't win. And it's a moment in the movie where you're just like, what? Like he's been training to fight this guy to win, right? That's what he's been training for. And she's like, what are you talking about? 
He says, it doesn't matter if I lose this fight. It doesn't really matter if this guy opens my head in either, because all I want to do is to go the distance. He said, nobody's ever gone the distance with this guy, and and if I can go that distance, and you see that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'll know for the first time in my life that I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. His goal is to go the distance. Now, you can forget everything I said about Rocky except for this, because there's no real theological significance except for this statement. He says, I can't win. And that's significant, because in the Christian life, you and I, we can't win. And here's the thing. God actually hasn't hasn't called us to win. He's just called us to persevere. You know why? Because he sent Jesus to come to live the life that we could not live, a life free of sin, a life lived in absolute perfection, and he paid the price for us so we don't have to win. The only thing we have to do is to persevere, and to persevere, we just look to Jesus. Check out Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. In those verses, we don't see anything about winning. Anytime you look at scripture, there's nothing about winning. It's all about endurance. It's all about running the race that is set before us. It's all about perseverance. Read the book of Hebrews. You will find that the entire book of Hebrews is centered around perseverance. That's what this verse is saying here in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The therefore in verse 1 is as a result of Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer of Hebrews describes everything that the people in God's people, like Abraham and Moses in chapter 11, they've fought for faith. It's called the faith chapter. It doesn't say anything about them winning, just says everything about them persevering in the faith. And as Christians, we have Jesus. We don't have to win. We just have to persevere. We just look to Jesus and we keep going in the face of opposition. Anytime we face opposition, we look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus has already won for us. All we do is stand in that victory and we keep pushing forward. We keep looking to Jesus. As we close... There are three steps that I found in this scripture, there's probably more, but in dealing with opposition. The first step, look to Jesus and then turn to God in prayer. Look to Jesus and then turn to God in prayer. Number two, become a relentless encourager. I'm talking relentless. Like, do not get discouraged. Do not fall in the quagmire of discouragement, but be relentless. If there is something good to say, say it out loud. If you just say it inside of your head, it doesn't benefit anybody. Like, to be a relentless encourager, you got to say stuff out loud. If you see somebody doing a good job, say, hey, man, that's a great job. You don't know what they're going through. Discouragement is invisible. You just don't know what people are going through. And to get out of discouragement, you often need other people to help get you out and point you back to God. Then lastly, deal with the internal opposition of sin. This is continuous in the Christian life. It's, it's always going to be a fight this side of eternity. We have to keep dealing with our sin, and by doing that, we look to Jesus. As we close, I'm going to close in prayer, 
and then uh, we're going to have a quick announcement, uh, pastor search announcement. So uh, let me pray. Father God, uh, we thank you so much, uh, Lord, that, God, we don't have to win. God, you've already won for us. You've given us everything that we need to persevere in the Christian life. Father, may we realize who we are. May we fight the fight for identity and truth. May we be who you've already told us that we are. May we be relentless in our encouragement for others to get them out of discouragement. God, thank you for your word. God, may we continually turn to your word for life and godliness. May we point each other back to you. And Lord, may we continue to persevere in the Christian life. Just keep pressing forward. Keep pressing forward, looking to you, God, and trusting you wholeheartedly and be the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.